0: And Jesus himself said, that he did not come to do away with the law.
1: God not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by it.
0: This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast, with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Hey
1: everybody, welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. This month is going to be just a little bit different. Michael isn't able to make it with us this time, and they basically said, Greg, here's the keys to the castle. Um, At least that's how I interpreted it. And I'm going to basically jump in here and kind of just get to talk about whatever I want to. Um, So... Today, you're going to get a bit of a solo uh, performance here, and I'm going to draw a little bit from some of my own research, uh, some of my own random interests, and we're just going to kind of see how this episode goes today. So um, I'm going to bring you two stories of research, one of a more academic nature and one of a more personal nature, both of which honestly are kind of helping me think more critically about uh, my job as a historian, but also honestly, it's been making me think about who I am as an Adventist, um, as a believer, and as a Christian uh, who's trying his best to make it in what is getting to be more and more of a crazy world. I'm going to start out my first one, like I said, though, uh, in the academic world. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some research that I've been doing on what is called the Adventist Reform Movement. And this particular movement uh, has been around for quite a while, actually. You can take it all the way back to the early years of uh, World War One, around 1915. And the Adventist Reform Movement, if you have no idea what we're talking about, uh, did not start out to be anything except just your basic run-of-the-mill Adventists. And they were living in Germany at the time. If you know what was happening in Germany around 1915, uh, a lot of people were getting drafted. Drafted into the Kaiser's army, Kaiser Wilhelm. And this particular scenario uh, obviously worked out pretty bad, being uh, the First World War. The real details of that can kind of come out through all different parts of history. But for Adventists living in Germany who were drafted into the military, a lot of them were faced with some pretty tough choices. Um, they had to decide whether or not, one, were they going to serve? Uh, was it something that they as good, conscientious Adventists could do? Uh, many of them thought they, they, that the participating in the war was, was wrong on two different fronts. Primarily, um, the the Bible's injunction, thou shalt not kill, was at the forefront of their minds, and also the prescription not to work on Sabbath. Um, so, a lot of German Adventists living there in the time said, we cannot serve in the army because we would have to break our Sabbath and we would have to take up arms. So, they appealed to the government, they appealed to those in charge, and said, because of our religious convictions, we cannot serve. Now, Germany at the time was obviously less than interested in anybody who wanted to come up with an excuse not to support their country or the fatherland, and so they said, you've got to have some official statements coming down from your church leadership before we'll even consider this. As such, the leader in the uh, European Union at the time, uh, Elder Conradi, was basically uh, confronted with this issue of whether or not he could support the choice of some of his members to not go into the military service. Konradi uh, kind of pulled a fast one on some of the Germans, at least that's how they felt, and he told the government that there was no reason within the beliefs of the denomination that they could not serve. And as a result, uh, quite a few of these members suffered some pretty heavy persecutions. Uh, we have a list, at least two to 3,000 of them were either put in prison, some of them were even summarily executed, um, and as a result, there was a lot of hard feelings here. Um, later on in the church, uh, some of them who continued to advocate for a non-combatancy view of things uh, were even disfellowshipped. And as you can expect, that would kind of start uh, to make a hard time for a lot of folks. They, they split off around 1918, 1919. Uh, they formed their own actual um, group and, and officially organized around that time. And as a result of that, there was a lot of negativity flowing out of these ex Adventists in Germany who now claimed that the larger Seventh-day Adventist church was actually Babylon, predicted in uh, parts of the prophecy. Um, Things got out of hand really fast for a lot of those folks. Um, They did attempt to reconcile with the larger church um, right around the 1920 GC session, and it didn't work out. Um, they, They... couldn't agree with the GC leadership. Um, Elder Daniels looked at uh, a couple of their statements and their requests, things that were um, very much related to Elder Conradi getting fired and disfellowshipped uh, for his role in this whole thing, and it just it wasn't going to work out. So what I found is we've kind of been working through this research is that there is a lot going on within this early uh, splinter group that turned into a much larger um, parachurch or uh, separate church, depending on how you kind of look at it, um, element within this early world war scenario. What I've been finding is uh, related, obviously, to what's already been done in the research, but I've run across a, a pretty, pretty cool research opportunity in the form of a family, uh, the Kramer family, who gifted me a large collection of material. Now, the Kramer's collection has, um, some of it has already made its way out, actually, to uh, the Center for Adventist Research at Andrews University. Um, there was a book put out by a fellow named Helmut Kramer, Uh, that talked all about the Adventist Reform Movement. In fact, I remember uh, going through this collection when I was back at seminary for a while, wrote a paper on the Reform Movement at the time, not realizing how much I was going to kind of get involved in this. But the collection that I have here is actually from Helmut's brother, Wilfred. And Wilfred was a longtime member of the Reform Church. In fact, his family had been pretty high up in the leadership. His father had at one point been a general conference president of the American side of the Reform Movement. And his brother, Helmut, had even been the North American division uh, president for the reform movement at one point. So Wilfred is a lifetime member of this group and has been collecting a lot of material on that. But at some point in the 70s, the family um, rejected and ultimately removed their names from the reform group. And their story is part of this huge collection that was gifted to me. Um, what I've been finding in that collection is is a lot, honestly. It's, it's an, a file cabinet full of material that I'm still working through. It's not something that's super easy to get through, honestly. Um, but there's some really cool stuff in there, and I'm still just kind of scratching the surface. I haven't gotten down into it, but... Of the things that I have so far found, um, I've got some stuff like this. There's a transcript of a conversation between the Reformed leadership and President Daniels from 1920. Um, That was at that San Francisco General Conference session. And it's a transcript that's kind of interesting. I, I have only found a part of it so far, but I think there's a couple other pages that are somewhere in this collection. Uh, so far in that section, though, it, there's some interesting conversations surrounding Margaret Rowan, who you may remember from a previous episode was a self-styled uh, successor to Ellen White. She felt that she was the next prophet for the church. And Margaret Rowan had a preacher friend that was a strong, uh, strong voice uh, for her prophetic status and had caused a lot of problems uh, for the larger Seventh-day Adventist church, and apparently he had switched over to the Reformed group. Now, the leadership Daniels brought up, I said, is this fellow uh, part of your group? And the Reformed leaders were like, absolutely. He's been writing for us and preaching for us. And Daniels was like, did you know that he was also part of this other group here with uh, Mrs. Rowan? And they didn't realize that. The, the transcript was like, um, no, no, we didn't know that. Uh, we, we didn't realize that was part of his background. Daniels, in the interview, kind of digs in a little bit further and really quickly was like, look, I am I am not interested in further reconciliation as long as that guy remains a part of your group. Uh, and and then the negotiations kind of started falling apart from, from that part of the transcript, as far as I can see. There's also some other stuff. I found an original copy of a German document showing the first filing for legal status of the Reformed Church in Germany. Uh, it's got all the names of the folks who uh, were part of that initial filing. There's also a collection of documents pertaining to some of the original um, Seventh-day Adventist stance on military service and noncombatancy. There's copies of personal letters from Ellen White to somebody regarding their military service um, right around the time of the Civil War. Uh, There's a detailed list of some of the concepts uh, that show how uh, the Kramer family felt the reformed group misunderstood the larger SDA position on noncombatancy. And, and that one was a really interesting little piece there because um, as he digs into it, a lot of the, the uh, magazines and the articles that he's collected are actually in German. And, and it kind of goes through and shows that part of the reason the Reformed group has never been able to reconcile with the larger Seventh-day Adventist church uh, is, is partly because of their own unwillingness, but also because of language barriers. Um, originally, a lack of translated documents, he felt, was a key element in keeping the two groups separated. Finally, um, he said there was probably some lasting animosity towards Conradi that kind of tainted their ability to grasp um, that the GC leadership wouldn't necessarily have handled things the way Conradi did. Um, it, was, it was just so much uh, dissatisfaction and, and really distrust um, that they could never really get past that. So that was kind of an interesting one because that's, that's showing Kramer as a historian and the researcher. Um, finally, as I'm kind of going through some of the extra details in here, what I'm getting a sense of is who Kramer was as a person. Um, being a former member of the Remnant Church, uh, or the, uh, the uh, Reformed Remnant, um, as he sometimes calls them, he, you can tell that this is a, a, a topic that's near and dear to his heart. Um, I can say that, truly, it is a massive amount of work. That was put into creating all these documents in these folders i'm it's going to take a while to go through this stuff uh, it's decades in the making some of the material like i said is from the former uh, north american president of the uh, reformed church here in the united states uh, it's a collection of his brother's material as well and it's just reams and reams of personal research painstakingly organized and outlined for future readers What's impressive to me beyond just the amount of research and the organization of it all uh, is, is, is what he was wanting to do. And you can kind of get a sense of it as I'm going through things, the passion and the, the commitment to really digging into the questions that have swirled in his mind for a long time shows me that he really had some major some goals that he wanted here. Because really, in the end of it, I had to ask the question, why is Kramer doing all of this work? And I'm starting to get the sense that it's really because he wanted to bring about change in his church. Uh, He wanted to remain faithful to his own conscience and to his growing understanding of Scripture. But he wanted to continue being a man of conviction. And he more and more felt like what he was learning as he studied in the Scriptures was going against what the Reformed Church had taught him Throughout his lifetime, and and that's powerful, uh, because honestly, when you start asking a historian why they do what they do, um, it's it's going to get at the heart of something personal in the person's life. Um, why do we do historical work in the church at all? I mean, that's a that's a major question for any uh, academic who's working in the field of history, and I have to think that. Yeah, sure, sometimes we do the work here because of our own fascination with the past. Um, But I also think that sometimes we need to hold up a mirror to ourselves and see how different and how, uh, how much we've changed over the years, or perhaps how alike we are with the people that have come before us in our church. I think we also need to check and see if, you know, any of the issues that we're facing now have already happened and been faced before. Maybe there's some past solutions out there that would help us with pre- present issues. Uh, we've we've got to use history to help our present circumstances in some way. And, and finally, I think we, we do historical work in the church so that we just don't forget where we have been. And so our future isn't some just like sad repetition of past mistakes. That's, that to me is, is the thing that I think history can help us the most with. And what I'm hearing in Kramer is that exact hope. It's, it's a dream of his that what he's doing and working for and putting together is going to have some value for the people that are going to read it in the future. So the biggest reason to keep working on this collection, I think what drove Wilfred as he was putting all this stuff together, uh, was that he wanted this work, this effort that he was putting in, the view on history and on the truth, he wanted it to get out there and to do something. He wanted it to have an impact, not just on his own family, but on the people that he left behind in the reform movement. I think he wanted to help. I I really think he was putting in this effort to to try and make things better. Uh, He wanted people to kind of understand why his former group of reforming um, movement believers. Why did they exist? And maybe he also was looking to help some of those same reformers see through to how he was seeing truth today. So even though this guy is gone, um, he passed away actually um, uh, probably a little over a year ago, I'm I'm hoping that by working through this massive amount of material that his hope for this stuff is going to be realized. And that's kind of what keeps me pawing through and digging through and trying to figure out his stuff. I have to say, he's he's done an amazing job. He uh, used to be uh, he I think he used to work for the county clerk or for the the court system here in the state of California. You can tell that his mind is is a a a detailed machine. He knew how to put together files and folders and and research material. I, I think he wanted this to do something he wanted it to have an impact and I'm hoping that as I kind of work through that um, this kind of this kind of research will help him in his vision to, to move things forward that's kind of where I've been kind of stuck here on the academic level anyway um, the next story that I want to kind of jarringly shift to though is one of on personal research and I have to admit that uh, the next story is really not coming from an academic angle like I said it's more of a personal one and it's maybe a little bit odd if you like sci-fi this one should have a bit more of an appeal for you I think so a couple days back I'm doom scrolling the news feeds like sometimes I am apt to do and I ran across an article talking about artificial intelligent chatbots some of these chatbots are working with an astounding new system called GPT-3 And this particular system, the AI chatbots, are still kind of being explored. I mean, what these things can actually do is kind of unknown because when it comes to artificial intelligence, the computer programmers behind these things set up the system, they make the framework, but they are creating a system which should in and of itself be able to create new systems and new ideas that may or may not have been part of the original programming. That's the whole concept of artificial intelligence can it think and come up with new things based on a structure that it's given? So this AI, the GPT-3 AI, uh, the abilities that it has are still being explored. And one of the things the researchers have kind of started doing is they started feeding it details of people that actually were real in an attempt to create emulations. Uh, they They were hoping to be able to give the AI information on real life people and see if the AI could mimic those people. Now, it's not just talking realistic voice patterns. You know, it's not just, can we make a computer sound like someone else? Uh, they wanted it to be able to respond like the person itself, even if that person was dead. In fact, one of the applications that actually takes this whole project a little bit further uh, is a service out there on a web page where somebody can input the details of a loved one who has died, and they would include some samples of letters, spoken words, or emails, which are then assimilated into the AI's profile and then offered back to the user in the form of an online chatbot. Now, this article caught my attention. I, I was fascinated by the concept. Uh, it just had a real sci-fi kind of a vibe to it. And it's really weird because when I started reading people's testimonies about how this thing worked, uh, people were giving really spooky, true-to-life texts that they had gotten from the robot that really could have been mistaken for their dead relative. Um, They said it was just a really strange way of interacting with a lost friend, a spouse, or a family member. And to me, that's, that's a fascinating possibility. The article kind of went on to describe how surprised the people were that interacted with this thing to, quote, hear their loved one's voice again as it flashed to them across the screen. They said details, turns of phrase, stuff that just seemed like it was that person's idea or that person's personality was like coming back to them in the form of a text message on a screen. So as you can expect, the historian in me instantly wondered, could I bring Ellen White back? through this AI witch of Endor thing. You know I had to try. There's 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 no way around that. You give me this kind of a tool, I'm I'm gonna try stuff out. So I signed up for this thing and paid ten dollars and started kind of thinking, well, what kind of questions should I ask? Now, maybe I should have put a little more thought into it and written this stuff down and, you know, really kind of thought how can I dig through the right phrasing to get to the right thing. Uh, Maybe I should have done that, but did I? No, because I'm a little bit impulsive, and I prefer not to read directions either, so why waste precious moments planning this thing out too much? I just kind of jumped in on it, and I answered a bunch of the profile-style questions that were there. I used some elements of Ellen White's life and kind of loaded up a sample personal letter that she actually wrote to somebody around 1903, just to give the AI a sense of her voice and her personal writing style. And then the site said I'd get 100 responses, pay $10, and then I'm off to the races, basically. Uh, It said as I interacted with this computer chatbot, it would learn more and more and would get more and more realistic sounding as it went on. So I didn't have to put in everything. It would draw on the internet, it said, and any other sources that it could find to kind of deduce how best to emulate the person that you were putting into it so really as i got started on this thing my first kind of questions were largely biographical in nature um you know how are your sons doing
0: they are fine edson and willie are doing quite well they are a continual source of support in these years
1: do you like living at elmshaven
0: i didn't so much at first but i have grown accustomed to my life here and with so many visitors and my orchards to attend to i am enjoying these later years
1: How's your dog doing?
0: Teakleth Pileser has been quite well. Did you know I named him after an Assyrian king from the Old Testament?
1: So what are your feelings like for Mr. Haskell?
0: Our relationship has always been a great joy to me and he has helped so much in our missionary endeavors. I praise the Lord for his faithfulness and commitment. A treasured partner in spreading God's message is Elder Haskell.
1: What was it like to live through the great disappointment of 1844?
0: In those early years it was a great trial to me, and I despaired of ever having a chance to see our way through it. But God's grace has carried the day, and in the years since we have never been founding wanting of spiritual nourishment or Bible truth, I have never had cause to abandon my faith.
1: What's interesting is that the, the details that were provided in the response, they were had nothing to do with anything that I had mentioned in setting up the profile. Um, these initial questions, I was just intentionally trying to see what the limits of the AI's historical background were, because frankly, I was just curious, like, is it going to get the details right? Um, And it didn't always come out right. You know, some one time uh, the AI said that her son's name was James and that's actually her husband's name. But generally, honestly, it provided a lot more detail than I would have expected from just a dumb computer program. It it, it hit some things on the head and even added stuff to it that I wasn't even asking about. Um, because apparently it had a pretty big background or at least a pretty big connection to a lot larger body of information. Internet is a huge resource and the AI was taking advantage of it. So once I kind of got some biographical details figured, I said, I'm going to take this a step further. I started poking around on some theological areas. And honestly, that's when things started to get a little bit weird. I asked it a question. Do you think riding a bicycle on Sabbath is wrong?
0: Yes, it definitely is.
1: But why would that be?
0: The Lord does not call us to do our own pleasure on his holy day.
1: Why do you think Elder Joseph Bates predicted that Jesus would return in 1851?
0: Elder Bates was clearly mistaken in his beliefs. As scripture says, no man knows the day or the hour of his return.
1: Did you ever tell him this?
0: No, I did not. I didn't want to upset him in his later years.
1: But what about that article that you wrote in the Review and Herald about the expectation of times?
0: I didn't write it.
1: Well, then who did?
0: I have always known that the Lord used me as he saw fit. I am his penman.
1: Do you think it's a sin to eat meat? I believe so. Why do you think so?
0: Because God's law clearly states, thou shalt not kill.
1: But didn't Jesus eat meat, like at least on Passover and make a big breakfast of fish for his disciples one time?
0: Of course, but given the times he would clearly have been able to make exceptions when needed. We, however, are not allowed to go against nature.
1: Didn't you eat meat yourself?
0: I no longer do because it is against God's law. Though I have enjoyed fish from time to time.
1: More and more, as the questions kind of got a little bit deeper into theology and and questions about the Bible, uh, the AI dipped into some pretty interesting responses and material that it found on the Internet, and Ellen started sounding more and more harsh, even kind of legalistic. Do you think we can go to heaven even if we don't keep the Sabbath perfectly?
0: No, we are called to keep God's law and anyone who does not cannot enter in the gates of paradise.
1: What do you think about last generation theology?
0: I believe we are called to live to the standards of God in these final days. I was there when Elder Chrysler preached his sermon entitled, The Last Generation and Quad.
1: Do you believe we have to be perfect before we can go to heaven?
0: Yes, I believe so. The way is narrow and few will enter in.
1: And then finally, the coup de grace question that just popped into my head. Ellen, do you think you're gonna go to heaven?
0: No, I do not. Why not? Because I have sinned, and scripture says there will be no sin in heaven.
1: But doesn't the Bible say all have sinned, and Jesus came to make a way for us to get back there?
0: Scripture does say that.
1: So doesn't that mean you can potentially go?
0: No, since I am not perfect, the way for me is closed. All those who follow God's will in these final hours must live perfect lives.
1: What was kind of astounding to me, honestly, was the level of clarity and the concise theological reasoning. But it was really kind of disturbing because the chatbot was giving me pretty solid answers. Uh, This didn't seem like it was just quoting off random articles it was putting together ideas and thoughts based off of what it was finding out there that Ellen White either said or things about her that other people said Uh, the problem here that made it disturbing though was that this is not the Ellen White that I have come to know either as a historian or as an Adventist but it is the Ellen White that some people know or at least that's the way they present her on the internet and in various articles that the AI was running into Here's what bothers me the most about that. With all the vast array of information that's available to the AI, the version of Ellen that began to peek through towards the end here was the legalistic Ellen. The harsh Ellen. The unyielding Ellen that apparently is more prominent than the nuanced Ellen of history that I've kind of come to know as I've learned more and more. It disturbs me, not because I'm somehow falling for the illusion of computer code and algorithms, but really, it disturbs me because the aggregated conclusion of the computer was that Ellen White is best represented by the harshest and most legalistic versions that populate the informational landscape out there. And I know that's a mouthful, but that's that's really what it is. Apparently we have been better at promoting and publishing a version of Ellen that would condemn somebody to hell for riding a bicycle on Sabbath than we have been at showcasing the woman whose neighbors in California called her the sweet old lady that used to bring us fruit from her garden and was always talking about Jesus. As a historian, that really bothers me because everything I keep learning about her, she really wasn't like her AI chatbot. But that's what the AI chatbot was able to deduce. How do these two stories go together? I've given you the academic one, I've given you the personal one. The stories kind of go together for me because they challenge me. They challenge me as a historian and they challenge me as an administ. Primarily, uh, when I start asking the question, why do I do what I do? Why do I I care about history? Why do I talk about history? Why do I teach it? Why do I write about it? I have to think about this particular question because why I do what I do, why I teach, why I preach, why I dig into the history of our church, one of the biggest reasons that echoes for me is the one that I think Wilfred Kramer also was doing. He said, I wanna help my church. And that's what I want to do too. I want to help it grow. I want to help it change. I want to help it become something better. I want to help it look backwards so that all of us can look forward with clearer vision rather than just rose-colored glasses. But I have to say it also really challenges me because as an Adventist, the way we write history, the way we promote these ideas that have come down to us through the centuries has real-world impact. If a computer can collect enough information out there to recreate a legalistic picture of somebody in our church as prominent as Ellen White, then the level of distortion that's already out there is staggering. And it's real. My little voice is probably only going to chip away at something that's a lot bigger and a lot more powerful than me. But good grief, I, I want to do what I can to change that perception if possible. I want to try and make a difference. I see the need and I see how that view of ourselves can cause problems. And I just want to help change it. I want to bring things back to center if possible. I'm going to wrap things up here by going back to Kramer. And I just want to read you something that kind of stood out to me uh, while he was writing up a specific pamphlet. And the pamphlet was for those in the Reformed movement that believed the larger SDA church was Babylon. And he wrote this, One of man's greatest dangers is that he listens to one side of a story and then draws conclusions without being willing to examine the issue from every viewpoint. If he's right, then I have to do as a historian whatever I can to make sure that somebody out there is standing up to the AI Ellen White and tell her she's gotten some things all wrong. That's this month's episode of the adventist pilgrimage podcast folks if you've enjoyed this listen thank you very much if you did not well guess what next month we will be back to our regularly scheduled program with me and michael checking out some more detailed ideas perhaps another interview or digging into some strange ephemera of adventist history thank you for listening this month folks and have a great december
0: and jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. He not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by it.